Um, my, name, my name is Roger. I get to be one of the associate pastors here. Our normal practice as a church is to study through the Bible uh, verse by verse, uh, through a book of the Bible. Um, right now we're in the Gospel of Matthew. Pastor Ben, the senior pastor, is uh, teaching uh, bit by bit through uh, Matthew. Uh, lately we've been in chapter 18, um, but at the end of chapter 18 we get to the section on church discipline. Um, and so he covered that, but uh, over the next couple weeks he's going to be um, diving in more into uh, what the rest of Scripture has to say uh, about church discipline. Um, so yeah, I get to preach today. He took the heavy, hard topic of church discipline, so I get to do something else. Um, so uh, Pastor Ben will be next week. We'll be back next week. Um, but for this morning, uh, turn in your Bibles to Psalm 19. We're going to be in verses seven through eleven this morning. And by means of introduction for uh, this passage. And I just want to point out that there are things in life, right, that sometimes we take for granted good things, uh, but we kind of get used to them. Uh, They become commonplace or even boring, and we kind of forget how good uh, those things are. Um, Just a a basic example is walking. How many of you guys walked this morning, just physically walked? We all, you know, most of us walked in here. Um, You know, but going for a walk, right? It's a good thing. Here's a list of all the benefits that uh, we get just by that simple act. Maintain healthy weight and lose body fat. Prevent or manage various conditions, including heart disease, stroke, high blood pressure, cancer, and type 2 diabetes. Improve cardiovascular fitness. Strengthen your bones and muscles. Improve muscle endurance. Increase energy levels. Improve your mood, cognition, memory, and sleep. Improve your balance and coordination. Strengthen your immune system. Reduce stress and tension. That's a lot of benefits just by going for a walk, right? And just reading this list is probably enough of a reminder to be like, maybe I should, maybe I should uh, do that a little bit more often, you know, get, get a little bit of exercise in. But the point of the study today is not about walking. That's just an illustration of the fact that something so simple we can take for granted but that has great benefit. So the passage that we're looking at today is going to remind us of the attributes and the effects of God's word in our life. In other words, will be reminded of what God's word is and what God's word does. So the context of Psalm 19, it was written by King David who wrote many psalms, right? And those psalms, they're, they're poetry, they're songs. This one is uh, titled to the chief musician, so uh, we understand it to be a song. So Psalm 19 is a song about God speaking. In verses one through six, he's talked about how the heavens declare the glory of God, right? And the firmament and how day and night reveal knowledge, how all the world hears the message declared through them. But now in verses seven through 11, he, he kind of switches gears and now he begins to sing about how God has spoken, not just through creation, but through his written word. So if you're able, please stand with me and we'll read God's word together. Starting in verse seven, it says, the law of the Lord is perfect, converting the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The statutes of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The judgments of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. More to be desired are they than gold, yea, than much fine gold. Sweeter also than honey, and the honeycomb. Moreover, by them your servant is warned, and in keeping them there is great reward. Lord Jesus, we thank you for your word. 
We thank you that you've given it to us. You've not left us in the dark as to how we are to relate to you, how we are to live our lives, how we are to relate to uh, the people around us, Lord, but you've given us your instruction. We thank you for it. I thank you that uh, it is powerful and sharper than a two-edged sword and that it just pierces into our hearts and, and changes us. So as we look to your word, we ask you to open it to us, give us understanding. Um, and then, Lord, I ask for your grace to communicate your word clearly and with power this morning in Jesus' name. Amen. So go ahead and be seated. So starting in verse 7, uh, we have the law of the Lord is perfect. Now, before we look at what that means, we need to ask the question, when David says the law of the Lord, what is he referring to? Because the word law uh, in Hebrew, the Hebrew word there is Torah. Now that might be a familiar word to you, uh, but the word Torah, uh, it literally means law, direction, or instruction. Um, But today we commonly use it, most commonly, to refer to the first five books of the Bible, right? Genesis through Deuteronomy, occasionally even the whole Old Testament, but in asking that question, what, what is David referring to when he says the law of the Lord? Um, at this point in time, the teaching, the instruction, God's word that David had was the, the Pentateuch or the first five books of the Bible, maybe a couple other historical books. But as David is singing about how wonderful the law of the Lord is, it is the, the Pentateuch that he has in mind. That is what is, is causing him to <laughs> break forth into song. However, because the rest of the Bible, right, both the rest of the Old Testament, the Psalms, the, uh, the prophets, the New Testament is also the word of God. It's also the instruction of God or the, the Torah of God, to use the Hebrew word. Um, it is safe to apply all the descriptions here in Psalm 19 to the rest of Scripture. In fact, we see the Apostle Paul in 2 Timothy uh, exalt the totality of God's word when he says all scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, thoroughly equipped for every good work. So Paul exalts God's word. So to sum up, it's answering this question, what is David referring to? In the immediate sense, what he had in mind was the Pentateuch, the Torah, the first five books of the Bible. But from our vantage point, having God's complete revelation given to us, we can safely apply Psalm 19 to the entirety of God's teaching. But before we get into how David exalts God's word, I want to make an observation about the fact that he does at all. Because like we talked about, David has the, the Pentateuch in mind, the first five books of the Bible, the law. And often when we think about the law, we mostly think about the 613 laws, which sounds overwhelming. Or we think about how the, the Pharisees in Jesus' day misinterpreted the law, misunderstood it, even misused it. Or maybe we think about Galatians or Romans or Hebrews and other places in the New Testament where Paul so clearly defines and defends the fact that as New Covenant believers, we are not under the law. In other words, when you and I hear the law, our initial response is not necessarily to burst out into song, right? We're like, man, we are not under the law. So why did David burst out into song about the law of the Lord? I think it's because David viewed the law not as a checklist, but as as a blessing, right? Instead of viewing 
the law as just this huge set of rules that he had to keep in order to make God happy, like the world's longest checklist, David viewed the law as a way to know the character of God, to know where we came from, how to know right and wrong, how to treat each other, how to know what God loves and what God hates, how to know the promises of the coming Messiah. Now, now think of this. Imagine a world, whether for David or for us, without God's word. There's no Bible. Or in David's case, there was no, there was no Torah. There was no instruction of, from Genesis. There was not the story of Exodus. There was not all the, the laws that he gave the, the people of Israel on how to be his people. Where would David be? He would, have, he would have nothing. He would have creation, right, which would tell him that God exists, right? He would, he would tell, it would tell us that there is a creator, but we would be totally in the dark as to how to relate to him, how to relate to each other. We would not have clearly written what is right and wrong, and when we got to the end of our lives, we would only hope that we had done it right, that we'd been able to figure out what is right. But instead of being left to our own devices to figure out what is right and wrong, God has given us clear written instruction on how to relate to him, how to relate to others in his word. And so just like David, we can view scripture, right? Including the New Testament, either as a a list of rules that we have to follow, like check all the boxes off and boom, you're a good Christian or now God likes you. It's either that or as it is intended, which is a description of who God is, what he's done for us, what he loves, what he hates, how we can love him, really how we can know God. And that is a blessing. It is a blessing to have that. And I think that is how David viewed God's word, was that it was a blessing. So let's get into what David says about God's word. Verse seven says, the law of the Lord is perfect. Perfect, meaning without blemish, complete, undefiled. It's the word that was often used to describe the Passover lamb or the the sacrificial lamb, which had to be spotless. So God's word is completely free from anything that would defile it. No errors, no mistakes. The Hebrew commentators, uh, Kiel and DeLitz, say that this word perfect uh, means spotless and harmless as being absolutely well-meaning and altogether directed toward the well-being of man. In other words, God's word was not given to us to bring harm to us. Rather, its instruction was given to bring life. You know, there have been countless claims throughout time that God's word is flawed, God's word is an error, God's word is contradictory. Many have, have claimed that God is evil or unjust or even abusive. But the only way to arrive at these claims is through misunderstanding scripture or misinterpreting scripture or even a blatant twisting of God's word. And this fact that God's word is perfect, that what God has said is perfect, it's been challenged from the very beginning. Remember how in the Garden of Eden, when Satan came to to tempt Eve, he directly challenged the fact that the instruction of the Lord is perfect. First saying, has God indeed said you shall not eat of every tree of the garden, he questions God's word. When Eve responds, then Satan responds to her and, and says, no, you'll, you will not surely die for God knows that in the day you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. What Satan told Eve was that God's instruction to you is not for your best interest. He does not have your good in mind. In fact, he has held things back from you that you should have. But that directly contradicts this truth. 
that God's word is perfect, that his word is good, that his instruction is good. So the first thing that David has told us is that the law of the Lord is perfect. And it says converting the soul, right? The first action attributed to God's word is to convert the soul. Now we see this word converting and we think of the salvation experience, right? Uh, and it's true that God's word that is declared through the gospel is a key part of being converted or born again. But it does not seem that the salvation experience is necessarily what David had in mind here. In fact, this word uh, converting uh, is used over, or that's translated converting is, is the Hebrew word shub, and it's used over a thousand times in the Old Testament. And only four times is it translated into the, in the King James as some form of the word convert. And once you get into the New King James, it's only twice that it's used uh, in that, uh, even in the sense of convert. Um, so the word shub most literally means to turn back or to return. Uh, and most other translations communicate, I think, the intended idea much clearer as either reviving, refreshing, or restoring the soul. I think the most vivid illustration uh, for us is in Psalm 23, where it talks about the Lord is my shepherd. And then verse three says, he restores my soul. So we have this image of the shepherd, right? Leading his weary sheep to green pastures and still waters. And then he's restoring, he's refreshing, he's reviving the soul of his sheep. So this is what God's word does for our soul. God's word refreshes our inward being. You know, there's, there's a difference between being physically tired, like you need a good night's sleep and being tired in your soul where you just feel worn down and beaten down. And when you're feeling that way, it's not just sleep that you need. It's you need refreshing in your soul. When our soul is dry and thirsty, it's not water that we need. It's something for our soul. And God's word refreshes and revives our soul. And he says, the testimony of the Lord is sure. So the testimony. So as we go through the rest of these verses, right, the idea that David is communicating with all these different synonyms of God's word or of the law of the Lord, what he's trying to communicate is, is that it's, it's God's word. He's writing a song, right? Not necessarily a theological paper where he's being super precise. He's being expressive. And so he's just like we do, right? He's saying the law of the Lord, the testimony, the statutes, the commandments, the judgments. He's using a variety of things, but all to communicate what God has said. So we can just sum it up and say he's talking about God's word. So it says that the testimony of the Lord is sure. Sure means firm or faithful, established, made sure, verified. So whatever it says, it means. Whatever it promises will come to pass. There are no maybes with God's word. It is reliable and it is a firm foundation. Now again, if we believe that God's word is not sure, it's not firm, is again to believe the lie of the serpent in the garden. Because what did he say? He said, did God really say? That question is meant to undermine the sureness of God's word. In other words, are you sure that that's what God means? But God's word is sure. So in Luke 6, Jesus, he gave the 
the, the illustration, right, of the man who built his house on the rock, the man who built his house on the sand. And he said that to obey his words is to build your house on a solid foundation that will withstand the storm. So God's word is the only thing that is sure and steady, the only thing we can build our life on. God's word is sure. And it says it makes wise the simple. So for anyone who lacks wisdom, God's word will give you wisdom. As it says in James 1.5, if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God who gives to all liberally and without reproach, and it will be given to him. He will give us wisdom. Now, what is wisdom? Great question. Wisdom is more than just knowing how to do stuff. That's knowledge, right? But wisdom is also knowing when and how and to what end. As I was reading different definitions of wisdom, uh, trying to kind of wrap my brain around how, how do you define wisdom, uh, I have a very ambiguous definition, which is, I think wisdom is the ability to make a good decision. But how do you define the word good? That is what makes all the difference. Because worldly wisdom is, will lead you to make choices based on what the world says is good, like self, like your own pleasure, your own interests. But godly wisdom, on the other hand, will lead us to make decisions based on what pleases and honors God. That is true wisdom. So you're making a decision that will honor the Lord. And so if we lack true wisdom, we get to ask God who can actually give us wisdom. And then he says he makes wise the simple. Both in James 1 and here in Psalm 19, there's an aspect of humility that is required in order to receive wisdom. Right in James, it says, if anyone lacks wisdom, that's the starting point, a person who lacks wisdom. And then we have to ask of God, which again is to admit, I don't have what I need. I don't have the wisdom, so I need to go somewhere else to get it other than myself. Then here in Psalm 19, David says that God's word will make wise the simple, which means the foolish, the naive, the open-minded, the easily led astray. Now, how many of us would like to wear that on our name badge. Hi, I'm foolish. I'm naive. I'm easily led astray. But until we realize that before God and without God, that is what we are, we cannot receive wisdom from God. Because if you think you have it, you're not going to go to him to get it. But God makes wise the simple. So when we approach God with humility, ready to be corrected and instructed, it says he will make us wise. He makes wise the simple. And it says the statutes of the Lord are right. Literally, it means uh, literally or figuratively uh, straight or upright. But to describe God's word as straight and say, oh yeah, God's word is this thing would fall short of, of the true understanding. Because it's not just that we describe God's word as straight. God's word is straightness. It is the ruler by which anything else that claims to be straight must be compared to. God's word is right. It is rightness. It is the ultimate standard of what is right. How do we know what is right? We compare it to God's word. We compare it to what God has said. He is the, the plumb line, the, the perfectly straight thing that we compare every other thing to. It's just the slightest, the stick is just slightly crooked, you will see it when you compare it to the thing that is truly, truly straight. And that's why when somebody claims that God is wrong in anything, 
And anything he says or anything he does, that person is implying that they are righter than God. They are straighter than God. They are more morally upright than God himself. It's like, ah, that decision, the way God did that, that was not good. But God is good, right? To declare God wrong about something is a claim that we must never make. Now, we won't always necessarily be able to understand how it's right or why it's good, especially as we're in the middle of a circumstance that's very difficult. We wrestle with questions, and it's okay to wrestle through and say, God, I don't understand how this is good. I don't understand why this is right. But our inability to understand in the moment does not change God's goodness. He is good. He is right, whether we understand it or not. But one day, we'll be with him, and I think we'll understand it a little bit better. So God's word is right. It means it's not wrong. When we read it, we learn what is right. We learn what is correct. We learn what is upright. Then it says that it rejoices the heart. Rejoicing the heart. Rejoicing means to brighten up the heart or to cheer up, to make glad, to make joyful the heart or the seat of our emotions, the inner man. God's word brings gladness to our hearts. We see a similar idea expressed in the New Testament where it talks about walking in the Spirit. Walking in the Spirit means to live in constant fellowship with the Lord. And when we're doing that, we're continually desiring to obey His Word in every situation. And the result of being filled with the Holy Spirit is that we produce the fruit of the Spirit, one of which is joy. So when the Holy Spirit is in us, He fills us with joy. As we read and obey His Word, He puts joy in in our hearts. But another observation about how God rejoices the heart is that God's word, it makes glad our hearts, right? Our feelings or the inner man where we experience emotions. In other words, God's word can influence or impact our emotions and inward feelings. Because so often I think something that can keep us from opening God's word, that can keep us from obeying God's word is our feelings. Right? It's our emotions. It's how we're feeling on the inside. We can feel down. We can feel sad, depressed, lazy, unmotivated, angry, annoyed. You name it. The way that we're feeling on the inside can actually keep us from opening the Bible. I think we've probably all, all been there. You're like, I don't feel like it today. And so you don't. I don't feel like obeying today. I don't feel like being in fellowship today. I don't feel like doing the hard thing. But what this verse tells us is that God's word can make our hearts glad. It rejoices our heart, which means it affects our emotions. It can change our emotions. And how many of you experience that? You're down, you're having a rough day, you get in the word, you open up the word, and it's like, oh yeah, now I remember. You're reminded of God's goodness. You're reminded that he is in control, and it changes the way that you feel, right? Emotions are terrible is a terrible boss, right? <laughs> Feelings are a terrible boss. But what we have the ability to do is open God's word and allow his instruction to impact and guide our emotions instead of letting our own emotions lead and guide us. And then it says that the commandment of the Lord is pure. Now this word pure is only used seven times in the Old Testament. So it's not, there's not a lot to, to draw from in understanding uh, this word. Three of those times it's translated as, as clean, right? Morally or, or physically clean. Um, 
But the next verse, David's going to use another word translated as clean. So it seems that in light of the, the rest of it, which is the commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes, it would seem that the, the passage in Scripture that translates this idea of what God's word is, or at least that word pure, is in Song of Solomon 6.10, where the woman is described as being as clear as the sun. Several commentators uh, define this word as uh, radiant or clear like the light of the sun. So you think of that paired with that it lights up, it provides light for our eyes. It kind of makes a lot of sense. And kind of like it says in, in Proverbs 6.23, which says, for the commandment is a lamp and the law a light. Reproofs of instruction are the way of life. So God's word is, it's a light. It's a brilliant light. It's something that radiates light and it gives light to our eyes. It illuminates our path, right? Without physical light, we're going to stumble around in the darkness, right? And without spiritual light, we're also going to stumble around. We cannot see the way to go. But as we open God's word day in and day out, his word lights up the path that we need to walk on, right? Psalm 119, 105 says, your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. So when we need instruction, when we say, Lord, what are we supposed to do? Where am I supposed to go? Day by day, open up his word and he will light up. He will light up that path. Verse nine says, the fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. Now this is a fun verse because we've been talking about God's word, the word of the Lord, the commandments, the precepts, the instruction of the Lord. And now suddenly he's talking about the fear of the Lord. Seems kind of out of left field. And also what does clean have to do with the fear of the Lord? Have you ever wondered that reading this passage? Like, what is he talking about? So the question that we have to answer is, is this. Is David switching gears and temporarily talking about the fear of the Lord, the idea of fearing God, or is his expression, the fear of the Lord, a poetic way of referring to the word of God? So if you interpret this as talking about the fear of the Lord, fearing God, here's where it gets fun. It makes sense. They, they both, both, op, both options actually make a lot of sense and line up with scripture, right? So if we translate it as the fear of the Lord, we, we can say that the fear of the Lord is, is clean. We look at 1 John 4.18, where it says there's no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear because fear involves torment, but he who fears has not been made perfect in love, right? Which is not negating the fear of the Lord, but it's clarifying that fear with torment is not the kind of fear that God's children have of him. We still should fear the Lord, but it's not the kind of fear that has torment because of Christ, right? Our sin has been washed away. Any reason to receive judgment from God has been removed because of Jesus. That checks out, right? Also, it endures forever. We see Jeremiah 32, 39 says, I will give them one heart and one way that they may fear me forever for their own good and the good of their children after them, right? So it talks about fearing God forever. That makes sense. I mean, you think of, if you get closer to the sun, you're not gonna fear the sun less. You're not gonna think, oh, this actually isn't so bad. This is, this is smaller than I thought. No, we're, the closer we get, we would experience its power even more, right? And so as we, as we walk with God, as we get to know God more, our fear of God only increases because we understand better his character. So that all checks out. 
that is, the fear of the Lord is clean and it endures forever. So it works and you know, it actually makes for a pretty interesting study to just dig into the fear of the Lord. But again, it's kind of out of left field and it doesn't really match. It seems like now we're talking about this and so for half a verse, David is now talking about the fear of the Lord. But the context I think would indicate that David is actually using the fear of the Lord as a way to describe God's word. Every other stanza of this song is about it. So it just makes sense. Right? These two descriptors, clean and enduring forever, they accurately apply to the word of God as found in other places in scripture. So what do we learn about the word of God? It says it's clean, which means pure in a physical, ceremonial, or moral sense. Right? It's a word that is used of people who have been declared clean in accordance with the law. It was used many times in reference to the gold, the pure gold that was to be used in building the tabernacle or the Ark of the Covenant and all the the things that went with it. So it was something pure, without impurity, not defiled by anything. So as we read God's word, we can be assured that it's pure and it will lead us to what is pure. And also it says it endures forever. Isaiah 40 verse 8 says the grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. As Jesus himself said in Matthew 24, 35, he says, heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will by no means pass away. So the truth that God declares is not only absolutely true, but also eternally true. His word will never pass away. He will preserve it and maintain it forever and ever. So it seems that the the most accurate interpretation of this passage, of this, this section of this verse, would be that it is God's word that is clean, that is pure, and that will endure forever. So then he says, the judgments of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. This word true is actually in Hebrew, it's the noun truth. So he says, the judgments of God, the word of God is truth. So much like we we talked about how God's word is the very standard of what is right. God's word is also the ultimate standard of what is true. God's word is how we measure anything else that claims to be true because God is truth. His word is truth. This is how we know what truth is, is because it aligns with what he has said. So for it to be absolute truth means it's true whether I like it or not. It's true whether I agree with it or not. It's true whether it offends me or not. It's true yesterday. It's true today, tomorrow, and for all of time. It's true in every culture. It's true in every scenario, right? As Jesus said in John 17, he said, your word is truth. So it's true. And then also he says, it's righteous all together, right? So the, the, the judgments, the decrees, what God has decided, they are, they are righteous or just, but he says just altogether. That word altogether means like totally just or united. In other words, his judgments are consistently just and right. None of his judgments are at odds with each other, right? In other words, you will never have to disobey God in order to obey God. Scripture is not going to contradict and tell you to do one thing and then tell you to do another thing. And if you're at a place where you're like, I feel like I have to disobey scripture in order to obey scripture, then your understanding of one of those passages is probably not what it needs to be because his judgments are consistent. Then he says, more to be desired are they than gold, 
Verse 10, he says, yea, then much fine gold. God's word is supremely valuable because gold in that time and in this time represents something of great value. David declares that God's instruction is to be desired more than gold. But David just doesn't say gold. He says, then much gold and more than much fine gold. So the finest, the best, the most pure gold, a lot of it, God's word is more valuable than that. Look at the Bible in your hands or the app on your phone. (laughs) The instruction contained in it is more valuable than anything else in this life. Let me ask you this. Would you trade the gospels for a billion dollars? You get a billion dollars, but never get to read the gospels again. No. Would you trade the Psalms for a whole street full of huge houses? Would you trade Romans for a thousand cars? No. Would you trade Genesis for a loaded stock portfolio? Whatever that means. We wouldn't because his instruction is so much more valuable than anything. And not only is it valuable, David says it's sweeter than honey and the honeycomb, right? This is before the days of 20 pound candy bars and 100 pound bags of refined sugar. Honey was probably the sweetest thing that anybody had or could get their hands on. The sweetest thing in nature. So David presents that, right? And he says, God's word is sweeter than that. His instruction is sweeter than that. And not just honey, he says honey, like right out of the honeycomb. He's not saying it was honey and honeycomb. In the Hebrew, it's basically two words that both mean honey. And it's like the finest, most freshest honey right out of the middle of the honeycomb, as sweet as it can get. He says, God's word is sweeter than that. So the question is, do you believe that is true? You can believe it with our minds. But do you live like that is true? Do you live like God's word is the sweetest, most valuable thing in the world? Because to have God's word and not open it often would be like living in a house with the most incredible view and you always keep the blinds closed or having the most incredible, beautiful sounding guitar hanging on your wall and it always stays there gathering dust. You never play it. Or having like just the most amazing food on your table every night and you're just literally eating frozen pizzas, like not even heated up frozen pizzas. It's like having the most comfortable bed in the world, but instead you sleep at church. I mean, you sleep on your floor. It just doesn't make sense to, get, to let your Bible get dusty, to not open it, because it is valuable. It is sweet. He says, moreover, by them, your servant is warned. So another blessing of God's word is that it warns us. Have you ever thought about how gracious it is of the Lord to warn us? Right? Not just that God tells us what to do or how to honor him, but it, it warns us. Right? It teaches, it, it admonishes us. It's saying, hey, no, no, don't go that way. Right? Let, rather than letting us plunge headlong into sin, God is faithful to let us know when we're just starting to veer off the course. And he does this through his word. And that's part of why it's so important to be in the word often. Because God is faithful to correct us when we start to go astray. He doesn't wait till we're 40 steps off the path and then he's like, oh, you actually get back on. If we are in his word, we will never get very far away from his will, from honoring him, from walking close with him. Because we're one or two steps away and we get in his word and he's like, hey, you're, you're not going the right direction. We can course correct. How sweet is that that he does that for us? 
right? Because sin is not usually something that we just wake up one day and just go off the deep end. It's usually from a habit, from day after day, just ignoring God's warning, not being open to him, not being in his word and being willing to hear his voice. Some of you probably have this old saying written in the front of your Bible that says, the word will keep you from sin or sin will keep you from the word. It's true. So get in the word, allow yourself to be corrected. Allow God's word to warn you. And you know what I've found in in my own experience is that if there's an issue in my heart, there's something the Lord is dealing with me on, there's some sin in my heart, whatever, it does not matter where I read in scripture. You can be reading in Genesis, you can be reading through Numbers and just literally just reading there is 12,000 of this tribe and 12,000 of this tribe. You could be reading in Matthew, Revelation, wherever, wherever I'm at, the Holy Spirit is like, hey, there's that one thing. He's so faithful to do that. So just get in the word, open the word and open your heart to him as you read and let him correct and warn you because that is such grace that he would do that for us. The end of verse 11 says, in keeping them, there is great reward. There is great reward for those who obey the Lord, right? There is, there's a great reward or, or, or consequence, literally, both physical and spiritual as a result of keeping God's law, right? We know there's an eternal spiritual reward as we walk with the Lord. We store up treasures in heaven. We think of how our reward will be determined, right, at the at the judgment seat, not our salvation, but our reward for what we've done. It says in 1 Corinthians 3, it says, but each one must be careful how he builds for no one can lay a foundation other than the one already laid, which is Jesus Christ. If anyone builds on this foundation using gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, or straw, his workmanship will be evident because the day will bring it to light. The judgment day will bring it to light. It will be revealed with fire and the fire will prove the quality of each man's work. If what he has built survives, he will receive a reward. If it is burned up, he will suffer loss. He himself will be saved, but only as if through flames. So there is a day when everything we do is gonna be thrown into the fire and only the things that were done in obedience to the Lord, that were done for his kingdom, those things will last. Now, we look at that passage and as we should, we're like, ooh, I want to make sure I'm actually building with the right things, that my, my whole life isn't just going to go up in flames. But also what we see in that is there, there is a reward as we build our life on the Lord. There is blessing. But there's also blessing in this life. It's not just, well, we, we'll, we'll get something good when we, when we get there, when we go to heaven. No, there is a reward for obedience right now. It brings blessing to our life. Now, this is not in the sense of like, okay, obey God and nothing bad will ever happen to you. You'll never have any trials or your car will never break down or none of that. That's, that's baloney. But there, there's the sense of the consequence, the reward of obedience is always going to be better than the result of disobedience to God's word, right? When we walk in the spirit, we will overflow with the fruit of the spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, etc. We can't just conjure those things up in ourselves but when we walk in the spirit, those things flow out of us. Is it more enjoyable, more enjoyable to be a joyful person or a grumpy, bitter person? It's not a great experience being, being a grumpy, bitter person, but the fruit of the spirit produces love and joy and peace in our lives. When you honor the Lord in your marriage, is your marriage better or worse? It's better. 
when you obey the Lord's instruction and in how to raise your family, how to interact with your kids, is your family stronger or weaker? It's stronger, right? There is blessing that comes with it. When we choose to pray and cast our cares on the Lord, we experience his peace that passes understanding. That makes our life better, not worse. When we honor the Lord in our interactions with others, when he says to look on the needs of others more than our own, that makes our relationships, our friendships, our community better. When we obey the Lord in matters of the church, how the church should be handled, how it is to gather what we're supposed to do, how we're supposed to handle sin in the body, that makes the body healthier, not more sick. There is blessing from obeying God's word. There is a reward for it. So I hope that today that we leave with a greater desire to read God's word, to obey God's word, to receive the joy, the wisdom, the direction, the correction that comes from his word. Let's truly esteem it as supremely valuable. May we taste and see that it is sweeter than honey. Right? If, if you leave this, this sermon encouraged to walk more, great, but I pray that you're infinitely more motivated to open up your Bible And as somebody pointed out to me in first service, if you get an audio Bible, you can do both. That's just a bonus. But if you're here today and you don't know Jesus, if you're not experiencing the blessing of his word, if this doesn't make sense to you, if you've not repented of your sin and placed your trust in Jesus, that is the first area of obedience that you must must go through. You must obey the Lord in that way. Because God has not left us hopelessly lost in our state, lost in sin. But he sent Jesus, his son, to come to earth, to bear our sins in his own body, to take the punishment that we deserve as he hung and died on the cross. Then he rose from the dead three days later and he stands victorious over death and the sin and the devil. And he commands all men everywhere to repent and believe in him. And when we do that, when we obey him in that way, our sin is washed away and we are forgiven. And even more than that, our sins are forgiven and then the righteousness of Christ, the rightness that his right standing before God is placed on our account. Not as something we've earned, but as an incredible gift freely given. So I urge you to repent, repent today and not be lost in your sin forever. And then you get to taste the goodness of the Lord. You get to taste the sweetness of his word and experience that closeness, that joy, how his word affects our emotions. And then the last thing before we close in prayer, this sounds like a shameless plug and it is, but I felt like I needed to, to include it, is that if, if you're hearing this and you're like, okay, I believe in Jesus, but I don't really understand the Bible. I don't really know what we believe as as Christians, I want to be able to read the word and have it refresh my soul and give me wisdom, but I don't really know where to start or how to, how to do that. What we have is a, is a, a discipleship program. It's, a, it's an opportunity to sit with a seasoned believer um, for about eight weeks. And there's, there's a chapter a week that you do. It gives you questions. You search scripture. You look through it. Uh, and then you meet up weekly and you're able to go through the things, go through the, the questions and the different topics. And it's just a really good opportunity to get grounded in what we believe as Christians. Uh, you get to ask questions, whatever questions that you have, whether it's related to the chapter or not, and just say, hey, so what does the Bible say about this? And it's just a, a sweet opportunity. So 
If that sounds like something that would be interesting to you, you can email this, uh, this email discipleship at ccentralia.com. They'll get you connected or in the connect area, there's more information uh, for that as well. But I just wanted to, to throw that out um, and just encourage you in that. So uh, let's close in prayer. Lord Jesus, we thank you for your word that it is sweeter than honey, Lord, that it is valuable, that it is, uh, just provides everything that we need, Lord. Lord, we just ask that you would give us a deeper understanding of your word. You'd give, her a, give us a deeper hunger and thirst and desire for your word, Lord. I just pray that as we read it, that you would use it to refresh our soul. And I just pray for those uh, in here today who need that refreshing, Lord, that your word would do that, whether uh, from what we've studied now or, or just going home and, and opening the word and just pray you would minister refreshing to those in need, Lord, and wisdom, uh, to those who lack wisdom, Lord, that you would just give us, Lord, just the, the joy that comes from your word. Just instruct us, Lord, and give us a deeper hunger for it, Lord. We just pray a blessing on the rest of our day, and we thank you for giving us your word and not leaving us in the dark. Lord, we love you. We pray these things in the name of Jesus. Amen.